Well, this morning, I want to take you to a passage that teaches a foundational truth about Christian discipleship. And this truth is one that has had a profound impact in my own life, and it's a truth that if we hold it rightly, will shape every area of our lives. You know, if we, if we get this thing right, we will get everything right. Everything else should just kind of fall into place. But if we get this wrong, everything will be adversely affected. Now, we're going to go to Matthew 13, 44 to 46. But before we even go there, I just want to tell you what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21. He says, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. And just before that, he said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I called this message, the disciples' treasure. And there's an intimate relationship between our hearts and what we treasure. Jesus says our hearts are going to follow what we treasure. Proverbs 4.23 tells us to keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. We're to keep or to watch our hearts, and, and we're to do so with vigilance, with all vigilance. And why are we to do that? Because from the heart, the issues of life flow. The heart is the source that determines everything else about our lives. You know, we could think about life kind of in, in these categories. There's kind of two aspects to our lives. There's the external circumstances that happen in our life, external circumstances, and then there's the inward processing. And so there's really those two things. There's the internal processing and the external circumstances. The internal processing is how we think about the world and how we think about our circumstances in the world and that's really what the Bible calls our hearts. And the heart is the only part of our life that we have any amount of control over. We can't control our external circumstances. We can't control what happens to us. And so maybe you've noticed when two people go through similar situations, maybe two people go through similar trials, and you've noticed that Two people, they handle those exact same or very similar situations entirely differently. And the difference lies in the internal processing of the heart, how they think about what's happening in the world. And biblically, the heart is our mind, our will, and our emotions or our affections, what we love. And how we think in our hearts affects how we respond to our circumstances, and how we respond to our circumstances then also affects our lives, either positively or negatively. Poor responses to the circumstances of life create problems in our lives. Whereas good responses, godly responses to the things that happen in our lives really create things, make things better in our lives. So how we process life and how we respond to life affects our lives for the better or for the worse. And therefore, the Lord tells us to watch our hearts with all vigilance. Be careful about what you are thinking. Be careful about what you are wanting and what you are feeling in your life. And because there's this inseparable connection between our hearts and our treasure, 
we need to make sure that our treasure is in the right place. Again, Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now today, we want to examine our treasure. We want to examine our treasure. We want to ask ourselves, what is a disciple's treasure? What is a Christian's treasure? And we're going to do that by looking at the parables in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. A little pair of twin parables. And so if you're there, go ahead and open your Bible. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says there, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now these two parables are very similar, some call them parable twins, and they really work together. And each of them makes a comparison to teach us what the kingdom of heaven is like. Again there, the kingdom of heaven is like, verse 44, and again, verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now as we come to the the parables here, parables use elements from everyday life to teach us spiritual truths. The Greek word parabole is a a compound word. That's where we get our word parable from, parabole. It's It's a compound word. Para means beside or alongside. And bale is just literally a throw. And so this is a, a throw beside. And so there's, we're, Jesus is throwing a natural truth, a, a truth from life, a truth from everyday life, and he's throwing it alongside a spiritual truth to teach us about spiritual things. And so parables use things that we understand like treasures and fields and uh, pearls and, and buying and selling and farming. And, and these are the things that the ancient Near Eastern Israelites understood from their everyday life. And, and Jesus takes those things and he casts it alongside or he throws it alongside the spiritual realities in order to teach us about those spiritual things. The natural world is used to teach spiritual truths. And in this case, it's truths about the kingdom of heaven. Now, whenever we study the parables, it's, it's helpful, it's good to begin by understanding that natural aspect first. Understand the, the true-to-life element first before trying to jump to what that spiritual truth is that we're trying to understand. And so we're going to do that today. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to divide our study into three sections. We're going to first look at what we're going to call the comparison, and then second, and, and, and there we're going to, under the comparison, we're just going to look at and examine the two stories on their own terms. We're not going to try to unpack the spiritual truth yet. So we're going to see the comparison. Then secondly, we're going to see the kingdom. And we'll see what the comparison then in the first part tells us about the kingdom. And then third, I want to ask you two questions that are going to drive this home. And so two questions. So the, the comparison, the kingdom, 
and then two questions. And those two questions are going to help us to really apply the teaching of these parables to our lives. And so we're on number one then, the comparison. So number one, the comparison. The kingdom is somehow like these stories. Something about the kingdom of heaven or some aspect of it is similar to what we have in these two stories. A comparison is being made. In verse 44, we see a treasure that's hidden in a field. And in ancient Israel, there were no banks, at least not in the way that we think of banks today. There was no banks. There was bankers, there was money changers and money lenders who would lend money at interest, but there was no safe place to store money. Jesus spoke often, even we already saw it today, that of thieves breaking in to steal. He spoke of thieves coming in the night. And if you were one of the few that had a little bit of extra money, one of the few that had money to spare, the house was the first place that a thief would look. And so it wasn't safe to keep your money in the house. And so what people would do is they would bury their money in the ground. They didn't have cash money like we had today. They had coins, copper, metal. And so they could bury it in the ground safely. In the parable of the talents, Matthew 25, one of the men buried his talent in the ground, you remember. And the, a, a talent was a weight of gold, silver, or copper. And hiding treasure then in the ground was just common practice in ancient Israel. Now, apparently, if you were buying or selling a field, it would include any treasure that happened to be in that field. And I, I guess if you were selling a field where there was some buried treasure, maybe you would disclose the, the digging up of the removal of that treasure. We're not exactly sure of all the details of how this worked. In parables, usually the details aren't significant for us. We just want to get the main point of the story. But if, if you would um, if you would have sold a field, that, that treasure would have been included. And Jesus' readers, Jesus' hearers would have understood this. Now, typically, the, oh, the, the, this man, this man in the parable here, he found a treasure and he went and hid it again. Now, the, the treasure doesn't seem to have belonged to the current owner of the field. And it's possible, if you think about it, that people could have died and there could have been treasure buried in certain fields and, 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 and people would have forgotten about and lost these treasures for generations. And this man, he found a treasure so great that he joyfully sold all that he had to buy the field in order to get that treasure. And we need to note here the joy of this man. This man was not forced to sell all. He gladly sold all to acquire the treasure. And so if we think about that, obviously this treasure was worth more than whatever he had, right? It just, it just makes sense. It was worth more than whatever he had. Now, the next comparison is very similar. This time we have a merchant. And the merchant is one who's seeking fine pearls, Merchants were traders who traveled on ships, and this merchant was searching for fine pearls. Maybe he had a, a, a buyer lined up who wanted high-quality pearls. And our merchant apparently found such a pearl, one of great value, the text says, one that was extremely precious or valuable. The word translated there, of great value, great value, that pertains to being, quote, very high on a monetary scale, very high on a monetary scale. 
And again, like we saw in verse 44, this merchant, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that pearl. Now there's some minor differences between the two stories, but essentially the basics are essentially the same. In the first parable, the man's kind of stumbled on the treasure. He wasn't looking for a treasure. He just stumbled upon it. In the second, the man was seeking what he found. In the first, the the man's motive for selling all was the joy that he had about this treasure. In the second parable, we're not given a motive as such. The first parable is told more vividly. Now, you might not notice this in English, but the first parable uses the present tense. And to highlight the present tense, we might translate it like this, ready? And from the joy of it, he is going and he is selling all that he is having and he is buying that field. And so the the present tense kind of brings us into this vivid picture of this man discovering and selling and buying and and getting this field. And the the present tense brings us into the scene. It's it's an action kind of scene. And so it's a, a vivid picture and there's excitement in verse 44. In the second parable, it's, it's more of a matter of a fact thing. This is the, the past tense, and so he found, and he went, and he sold, and he bought. But both parables have this in common, the finding of something of great value and selling all to acquire that thing. Now, that's the main point of these stories. Now, we're not meant to grab out anything. I used to wonder about this parable. I'd think, what about this guy who is sitting there rubbing his pearl with nothing to eat? You know, that is not the point of the parable. The, the main thing we're trying to, to draw out of this is that there was something of such great value that the people willingly and even joyfully sold everything in order to have that thing. Now, we haven't decided what this parable teaches yet, But whatever it teaches, the main comparison, again, is going to be this, the finding of something of such value and selling all to acquire it. This is the comparison, the illustration, we could call it. Now we need to discern what spiritual truth is this comparison designed to teach. And we're going to call this, we're on number two, the kingdom. So number two, we are on the kingdom. Both of these parables, like I already showed you, start with the kingdom of heaven is like. These stories, really the whole story is going to tell us something about the kingdom. Something about the kingdom is like finding something of great value and selling all to get it. But before we get too far into this, we need to know what the kingdom of heaven is. Now, if we'd been working verse by verse through Matthew up to this point, we would already have a very good idea of what the kingdom is. Matthew quotes time and time again from the Old Testament showing that Jesus is the Messiah King who is promised. Scriptures in the Old Testament promised a a coming Messiah, a King who would be greater than David who would come, and this King would undo the effects of the fall. He would deliver his people from sin and Satan. He would bring about justice and righteousness on the earth, restoring God's original purpose for creation. And through the work of this Messiah, all of God's promises to all of God's people through all of time would be fulfilled. Now, we could spend a couple of hours looking through the Old Testament scriptures on the kingdom, but we don't have time for that today. 
And, and so I hope you kind of understand a little bit about the kingdom already. But Matthew 13, and spe- specifically Matthew 13, brings in something else that is happening with the kingdom. Jesus is starting to teach his disciples about a change in the kingdom program. Now, even the word change isn't exactly the right word because God never changes his plans. His plans are eternal. But Jesus, starting in Matthew 13, begins to reveal something that was, that was new to Jesus' hearers. And, and the teaching is this, that the kingdom promised in the Old Testament would not be established until a second coming of the Messiah. The, the kingdom would not be established until Jesus came again. And instead, he would die and he would rise again. And then later, after a period of time, he would return to establish the kingdom. And Matthew 13, all of the parables in this chapter follow the rejection of the Messiah in Matthew 11 and 12. And, and all of the parables in this chapter teach Jesus' disciples that even though there would be a gap before the kingdom is established, it teaches them that they could still participate in God's kingdom program. They could still be workers in the kingdom. And so they and we, as Jesus' disciples, can participate in the work of the kingdom, which is the greatest work that God is doing in history. Now, all of the parables in Matthew 13 really teach us this, but one of the, the, the best and most, the, the easiest and maybe the most, uh, the, the way that you guys would most um, relate to this or, or the parable that you know most is what we call the parable of the soils or the parable of the sower. And you guys know this one, Matthew 13, 1 to 9. It's the parable. And then in verses 18 to 23, there's the explanation. Now, I'm just kind of assuming that, that you guys have read this parable and you know this one. Jesus' disciples are to proclaim the message of the kingdom, right? They're to, to, to go and preach the gospel. And the response to the message would be various. The, some people would reject the message, right? Satan would come and take the word away from some people. Some people would receive the message with joy, but they won't endure to the end. They don't have the root, Jesus says. They're not going to endure to the end. And there's some people who would hear this message and they would bear no fruit. The world would choke out their fruit. And so the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to retain their influence on many of our hearers as we go out and preach the gospel. But look at Matthew 13 and verse 23. Jesus says there, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Indeed, he bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. And so some people, by divine grace, will receive the word and they will bear remarkable fruit. Amazing yields, and and the amazing yields in that text point to the miracle of regeneration, the new birth. There's a, a transformation in the new birth that causes the believer to overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil, and so that they live a life of fruitful obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this transformation doesn't mean that a believer is perfect in this age, but it definitely means that there's a significant change in the life of somebody who is born again. This change of life in verse 
38 of Matthew 13 is called becoming a son of the kingdom. Look at Matthew 13, 38. Jesus explains this other parable here. He says, the field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let, them, let him hear. And so at the end of the age, those who did not receive the gospel in a life-changing way, whether they professed Jesus Christ or not, they will go into the fiery furnace of hell. And then Christ will establish his kingdom. And the righteous, those who truly believe the gospel, will shine like the sun in the kingdom. And so to kind of summarize all of what that I've been saying, there's the, the, the participation in the kingdom work happens as we preach the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, some people respond to it, and they become sons of the kingdom. Now, the kingdom is still a future thing. It still hasn't been established until Christ returns. But when Christ returns, the sons of the kingdom will enter into that kingdom, and then they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Now, if you weren't able to catch all of that, and sometimes you know that might just be a, a bit of a mind blow, let's, let's try it again in another passage. I want to take you then to Matthew chapter 19. And so turn with me to Matthew 19. Now, if you, just to remind you, we're, we're asking here, what is the kingdom of heaven? So let's go to Matthew chapter 19. And we'll start at verse 16 there. This is the, the rich young ruler. And the, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in verse 16, and, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? Jesus responds, in, in effect, if you want to have eternal life by doing some good thing, it requires perfect obedience to the law. And moreover, look at verse 21, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, this man wants eternal life by doing something. Jesus says, you know, keep the law. You'll have eternal life. The, the man says, hey, I'm still lacking eternal life. I, you know, we're not going to get into all the details of this. But if you would be perfect, go and, and sell what you have. have. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. And notice how the man responds in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This man was unwilling to forsake his possessions he was unwilling to leave his earthly comforts for eternal life. He wasn't willing to come follow Jesus Christ. Now look how Jesus responds to this man's response in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. 
There's our kingdom there. Only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now with this, the disciples are shocked. And in verse 25, when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Who then can be saved? Jesus, verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, With man... This is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now, I love verse 26. Jesus looks at the disciples who have eternal life, and he says to them, what, what you have is impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. Now, only God can accomplish the impossible that sinful men and women would turn from sin and Satan and from the world and forsake all and come and follow Jesus Christ. But I, but I came to Matthew 19 here to show you the, some of these connections here on the kingdom. So verse 23 uses the term the kingdom of heaven. And verse 24, basically a parallel passage says kingdom of God. And so kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, these are synonyms. They mean the same thing. To enter the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is tied to eternal life. Remember, the original question was, what good deed must I do to have eternal life in verse 16? And so entering the kingdom, having eternal life is also the same as being saved, which we see in verse 25. The disciples respond, who then can be saved? And so entering the kingdom, having eternal life is the same as being saved. And another way to say the same thing then again is to say, come and follow Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus is to become a disciple. Now look at verse 21 again. Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Now, Peter seems to have gotten himself stuck at verse 21. Uh, he, he, heard, he heard treasure in heaven, and he was like, you had me at treasure, and he kind of seems to have lost track of maybe even some of the rest of the conversation. And so Peter, in verse 27, says in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will, what then will we have? He wants to know, what are we going to get, Lord? What are we going to get? I, I left everything. And the Lord replies in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, or literally in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne at the time of the establishment of the kingdom, I say to you, let me read that again. Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now notice, when the Son of Man, the Messiah, the, the King, comes, when he will sit on his glorious throne. It's in the new world. It's in the regeneration. And at that time, the apostles will also sit on 12 thrones, reigning with Christ over Israel and the world. And also at this time, believers will be rewarded and they will inherit eternal life. 
Now, if, you, if you're still with me, let me just try to summarize some of this for you. The kingdom of heaven is that time when Christ will reign over the world as king. He will destroy the wicked, he will establish his kingdom, and he will reign on earth, Revelation 20 tells us, for a thousand years. And then after that thousand years is over, he will then reign forever and ever on the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we enter that kingdom through the gospel. We enter that kingdom through faith in Jesus Christ. We enter that kingdom through salvation. And then as sons of the kingdom, we wait as citizens of that kingdom, we wait for the establishment of the kingdom. And so there's a sense in which we can enter the kingdom now through faith in Christ, but we wait for that kingdom to be established. That is the kingdom that Jesus is talking about when he says the kingdom of heaven is like. And on that day, we will enter the kingdom and we will receive a reward for how we served the kingdom and how we served the king while he was away, while he was waiting for to come and establish his kingdom. And so we serve the king and we seek first his kingdom, get this, by proclaiming the message of the kingdom or by proclaiming the gospel. And this kingdom is like finding something of such great value that you will give up everything to have it. And so listen now, being a son of the kingdom is worth more than all that we have. Being a son of the kingdom is worth more than all that we have. Now what I want to do now is I want to ask some questions to kind of zero in on what this means. And this is number three in our outline. There's two questions. Two questions. And I, I want to ask two questions really to drive this home. And the first question is this. We want to just ask, why is the kingdom so valuable? Why is the kingdom so valuable? What is it about this kingdom that's so valuable that it would be like this guy who found a treasure or this guy that found a pearl and, and would sell everything to have it? What is it about this kingdom that would incline somebody to think so highly of it? And I want to give you, relatively quickly, I want to give you five reasons that the kingdom is so valuable. And these kind of go in an ascending order. So why is the kingdom so valuable? Let me, let me give you five reasons. Number one, entering the kingdom or being saved or having eternal life or whatever we want to call this, coming and following Jesus, it's so valuable because it is the salvation of our souls. It's the salvation of our souls. Entering the kingdom or being saved is the salvation of of our souls. Jesus asked in Matthew 16:23, "For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul?" Then he asked again, "Or what shall a man give in return for his soul?" Now the answer to those questions is nothing. If you gained the whole world but lost your soul, you have nothing. What is the value of your soul? What is the value of your soul? Without your soul, you lose everything else that you have. And so everything you have without your soul becomes worth nothing. And so in exchange for his soul, a wise man would give anything. In exchange for a soul, a wise man would give everything. Sound reasoning would go something like this. I would rather save my soul than have anything else. 
But here is where the depravity of man and the impossibility of being saved apart from divine grace comes in. Because our reasoning before salvation is anything but sound. We are not wise by nature. Man is bound in sin. Man exchanges the glory of the creator God for the darkness of the creation. In exchange for his soul, man will take almost anything except God. Man will exchange his eternal soul for the temporary, fleeting, empty pleasures of sin. Man says, I would rather have the approval of my ungodly friends than my soul. Man says, I would rather continue in my sins than keep my soul. You know, I'll never forget a day when I I sat with a man and, and counseling him, and he told me after about an hour or so of discussion and digging into what was in his heart, he told me that he would rather have a beer after work with his ungodly buddies than to have Jesus Christ. What an exchange. And yet, people do this every day of the, of, of the year. Again, Matthew 16, 24, Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. But naturally speaking, man says no to the cross. Man says no to losing his life for Jesus' sake. But the kingdom is valuable because it is the salvation of our souls. Now number two or second or however you're doing these, the kingdom is valuable because it is deliverance from hell. The kingdom is valuable because it is deliverance from hell. If, If entering the kingdom is being saved, then what we need to do is we need to ask, saved from what? Saved from what? And salvation is from sin, and it's from the penalty of sin. And the penalty for sin is death, an eternal death, which the Bible calls hell. Sin is rebellion against God. Sin in all its various forms is an attempt to overthrow God's rightful rule. You see, this is God's world. We are breathing God's air in his universe right now. And rebellion against the infinite God deserves an infinite penalty. And if that seems unfair to you, then you haven't really grasped the infinite majesty of God or the exceeding sinfulness of sin or probably both of those. Hell is a horrible place, but anything less than hell would be an unworthy punishment for sin against a God who is so good. Hell is also called the wrath of God. Those who have, who have not escaped God's wrath through faith in Christ will bear God's wrath forever in hell. And so part of the value of that kingdom is that those who belong to this kingdom will not endure God's wrath. They'll be saved from the wrath of God. You see, Jesus bore this punishment in our place. We deserved wrath, but Jesus took what we deserved on the cross. And when Jesus died on that cross, he paid the penalty for sin for everyone who would ever believe in him. And because of what Jesus did, we can be justified by faith. When we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God declares us 
righteous. He gives us this declaration of righteousness. And in the same way that Jesus bore the penalty for our sins, we bear the merit of his righteousness. And again, simply by faith, God grants us this salvation. And true faith, true saving faith, joins us to Jesus Christ and makes us turn from sin to him. And we'll talk about that more in just a moment. True faith involves a transformation. But I'm giving you reasons why the kingdom is valuable. And we've seen, number one, that the, the, the receiving this kingdom, entering this kingdom is the salvation of our souls. We've seen, number two, that it delivers us from God's judgment. Now, number three, we see that it does those things eternally. The kingdom of heaven is valuable because it, it saves our soul and delivers us from judgment forever. You know, our life in this world is temporary and temporal. We live maybe 80, 90, maybe even 100 years, but what is that compared to eternity? Paul understood the value of eternity when he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so to be saved means you're delivered from judgment forever and that you have entered into eternal life. Now the fourth reason that the kingdom is valuable is because entering the kingdom is equivalent to entering the rewards of eternal life. We're talking here about the joys of heaven. Entering the kingdom means you are going to enter into the joys of heaven. The eternal destiny of the citizens of the kingdom in Matthew 25, 21 is called entering into the joy of our Lord. And those who enter that kingdom are called there blessed of my Father. And the blessings that only God can give are found in that place, in that kingdom. Only that God can give. These are amazing rewards that we have in heaven. And let me just read them to you from Revelation 21. John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. The one who conquers in the book of Revelation refers to the true believer. And believers will have this heritage. 
Now, if I had the tongue of an angel, I would still be unable to describe the joys of heaven to you. But these rewards will be amazing. But the greatest reward and the fifth reason that the kingdom is so valuable is number five here, fellowship with God. Listen now, living forever and living forever not in hell and and living forever in heaven will be wonderful. But the best part without question will be living there forever in sweet fellowship with God. No more pain, streets of gold, gates of precious stones, whatever else there is in that place will be wonderful. But the real joy, the lasting joy of heaven is being there with our glorious God. Jesus said in John 17, verse 3, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing God is eternal life. And the fellowship that we have with God now should be our great joy even in this life. And if God is our delight, then we are enjoying the highest possible object because God himself is the supreme good. And God has revealed and and will forever continue to reveal himself in heaven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And the gospel, the message of the kingdom, is this message that brings us to God. It's this message that unites us to God. In the gospel, by faith, we are united to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so through Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we are united to God. And so you see, the ultimate treasure of the kingdom then is God himself, as revealed to us in Jesus Christ. And that treasure is of such a nature to one who finds it that he or she, for the joy over it, will sell all to acquire it. It's not as though we are to buy our salvation here. We can't buy salvation. But true faith sees Christ and takes him for the treasure that he truly is. True faith recognizes Jesus as worthy and says, I will give up all For his sake. There's nothing on earth that I would rather live for than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is worthy of all glory and honor. And so I want to live my life for his sake because he is such a treasure to me that I'd rather have him and please him and serve him and love him than do anything or have anything else that this world can give us. And faith says, then I will live for Jesus and his glory because he is worth even more than even my own life. He is worth more to me than even my own life. I would give up my life for him. I will lose my life for his sake because he deserves it. He deserves my life. He deserves your life. And so we've seen these these reasons why the kingdom is valuable. And I gave five reasons because our souls are valuable, because deliverance from hell is valuable, because those things are eternal and eternity is valuable. Because heaven and the rewards and the joys of that place are valuable and because fellowship with God and with the Lord Jesus Christ is valuable. And now, secondly, I want to ask you, friends, brothers and sisters, do you find it so? 
Do you find it so? I could ask it like this. Have you found the treasure that is hidden in the field? Have you found Jesus Christ to be of such a great value that you find losing all to be worth having him? Philippians 3, verse 7, Paul says this very same sentiment. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count, present tense, I continue to count everything as loss because of, because of what? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord makes me count all things as loss in comparison with him. Paul says, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And so I ask you again, have your eyes been opened to see Jesus and your relationship with him as something of surpassing worth? Another way to ask this is, do you love Jesus Christ supremely? Do you love Jesus Christ supremely? Have you found the most valuable thing by divine grace? Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is a treasure. And to enter the kingdom, we must receive it as a treasure. You know, that's the only way, if you think about it, that's the only way that we'll be able to take up our cross and lose our life for his sake if we see him as a treasure. That's the only way we'll be able to follow Christ because it's, otherwise it's too costly. Otherwise we'd say, let's go back to the world. Let's, this is not worth it, right? But, but he is worth it. And so that's the only way we'll be able to lose our lives for his sake if we take him as the treasure that he truly is. And in order to do that, God has to open our eyes. And if Christ is our treasure, our heart will be with Christ. And our thoughts will be thoughts of him and will be on him and our wills will be directed by him. And our affections will be for him because he is our treasure and where our treasure is, our heart is, our will, our mind, our emotions will be there. And so Christ is the disciple's treasure. And if he is your treasure, then you are disciples indeed. But if he's not your treasure, then I invite you friend to come to him today if you're here and and you've maybe you've been been a professing Christ your whole life but but maybe you've never seen him as a treasure worth giving all for then I invite you you need to come to Christ today and take him for the treasure that he is because if he's not your treasure then you will spend eternity in hell for your sins and so I invite you again to receive the greatest treasure worth forsaking all in order to have him.